Good to see you this morning and want to give a special word of greeting to the youth who've been here for Disciple Now and hope you've all had a great weekend. It's good to see you all in your blue shirts and your leaders look tired, but I know they enjoyed the weekend with you all. So I told some of the leaders earlier, if we see them kind of sprawled out across the back of the sanctuary taking a nap, we will understand why. But we do appreciate all of you who have invested in the lives of these youth for this weekend. Well, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. This is our eighth week in the Gospel of John, and we're in chapter three. So we will, we will get through it. We're just going slowly through it. There's a lot of riches to this particular book in this. And so today we're going to be picking back up in John chapter 3 if you want to be turning there in it. But just quick review so we all kind of know where we've been at, especially if you're new or visiting so you know where we are in our study. The key word of the whole book of John is to believe. In fact, the main, you've heard me say many weeks before, the main verse that tells us why John wrote is John chapter 20, verse 31. And we're going to put that one up on the screen for you because this is why John wrote the book. And like we did last week, I want us to say it all out loud together again because this reminds us why we're studying this and what this is all about. So say it with me here from John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The key word of all of the Gospel of John is to believe. We saw in chapter 1, we saw the earliest followers of Jesus were those who believed in him, who followed him, and invited others to do the same. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine, and we saw that his miracles reveal his glory and help us believe. We also saw in chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple there, we saw a contrast between belief and unbelief. And we saw what that meant to really believe in him. But we also saw in that account there's many who were curious about Jesus because of the signs he did. And we saw that that was not a saving belief. And I said that week that Jesus did not believe their believing because it was an authentic belief that led to change. Then we saw last week with the story of Nicodemus in the first part of John chapter 3 that unlike curiosity, a true belief in Jesus is receiving a radical transformation from above. It's a transformation the Bible describes as being born Again, And we saw that belief is receiving that. And so you can probably guess what one of the keys is going to be in today's passage is once again to believe, as we will see in all of these passages of this. And so we continue in John chapter 3. Where we left off last, we kind of stopped in the middle of an account, just to get you caught up if you weren't here. Where we were looking last week in the first ten verses of chapter 3, Nicodemus, who was a religious leader of the Sanhedrin, he was a very influential person, he shows up at night literally at night, but also because his soul was dark and lost in, in his own sin, he comes to Jesus at night, curious about who Jesus is. And we see Jesus responding to him and giving these two profound truths that are what we call truly, truly statements. These statements where Jesus is saying, listen up, this is important. And last week we saw those in, in John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He talks about what that meant. And then we saw in verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so if you remember from last week, we talked about being born again. It's not Jesus just fixing a few things on you. It's the image of your car being in a wreck. And it's not like you need a new, like a scratch painted over or something. This is like your car is totaled and you need a whole new car. The image of Jesus changing us is not just him fixing a few things on us. It is a total radical transformation, a totally being born again in this. And at this point in the story, where we pick back up today in verse 11, Nicodemus drops out of the equation here. He's not being really even specifically addressed anymore. The yous that we start seeing here become plural yous. Jesus is now addressing, out of what happened, Nicodemus, a broader audience. And that's where we pick back up today in verse 11 with another one of the truly, truly statements. 
But before we read it, I want to give you what I believe is the main idea, and I want you to be listening for it as we read the text. And the main idea of this section of John 3 is simply this, that we can believe Jesus when he tells us why he came and how we are to respond. We can believe Jesus. We're going to talk about what that means, why he's trustworthy. But we can believe him when he tells us why he came, and what do we do with that, and how we respond. So that brings us to John chapter 3, verse 11. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God this morning? We're going to be in verses 11 through 21. I'll be reading out of the ESV. John 3, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We're thankful as we continue in John 3 that you show us what it means to believe. And I pray that even as we look at for John 3.16, which is a verse so familiar to so many of us, perhaps one of the first verses we ever learned, how would you help us see it with fresh eyes today and just marvel at the good news you've given to us, that we might worship you and follow you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. So again, we can believe in Jesus when he tells us why he came and how we are to respond. First of all, big picture, why can we believe in Jesus? Why is he trustworthy? Why can we believe these words he is telling us? Well, the answer for that is in verses 11 through 13. So look back at those first few verses we read here of why we can believe in Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus begins with truly, truly, which I told you last week means, listen up, pay attention. This is really important what I'm about to tell you. And what is it that Jesus is saying that's so important? He begins with what's so important, why we can trust him, why we can believe what he is telling us on this. And if you notice the beginning of verse 11, he tells us that he is speaking and he's bearing witness. So this truth that is so important that he says, truly, truly, listen up, is I'm speaking to you about something. I'm bearing witness to you about something. And what is it he's speaking and testifying about? What we know and what we have seen. Friends, Jesus is not just telling us some secondhand truth. Jesus is not telling us just some philosophical idea that might have some merit for us to consider. Jesus is not just telling us his opinion or his best guess of what may happen here. Jesus is telling us the very thing that he has himself seen, that he himself has witnessed, that he himself knows is true. And how is Jesus able to have such certainty about what he's about to tell us? The answer is in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, to make sense of what Jesus is saying here, we have to go back to the book of Proverbs. So hold your place here in John, and we're going back into the book of Proverbs for just a minute here, to Proverbs chapter 30. 
Because what Jesus is saying here is actually a quotation from what happens in Proverbs 30. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 1 through verse 5. Give me a second to get there. This is a, this is a, this is a proverb coming from Agar, son of Jacob. So let me see if we can pronounce the names right. But Proverbs 30, verse 1. The words of Agar, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, in quoting Proverbs 30. In Proverbs 30, this is a proverb of the limitations of human knowledge. It's our own human frailty, our own human limitations here. If you look back in verse 3. This guy, Agar, says, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. And this is basically what Jesus was showing Nicodemus last week. Nicodemus came in. We know, truly, that God must be with you. Jesus helps him see that really he doesn't really know the Jesus that he thinks he knows here. This is basically similar to what's going on here in Proverbs. This this guy says, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Friends, on our own, our human mind cannot understand God. We are limited. We are frail. We cannot fathom the complexities of God. We do not have wisdom. We are not that great. Verse 4, though, the contrast for us here. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Friends, who of us has gone to heaven, communed with God, figured out all the mysteries of God and come back to tell it. None of us have. But who has? Look at the imagery of verse 4 here. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? The answer is not us. God. And Jesus takes this here and is going to apply it to himself because notice what happens here in Proverbs 30, even in verse 5. Because of who has come down, every word of God proves true. It's all about wisdom. So what Jesus does, if you go back now to John chapter 3, verse 13, and he takes this proverb and he applies it to himself. Who is the one who has been in heaven? Who is God who knows all things? It's Jesus. Who alone is the possessor of all divine wisdom who can come down and bring that wisdom to us? It is Jesus. We don't have the wisdom. We can't go to heaven and get the wisdom and bring it back. But Jesus has come to bring us that wisdom we need. Therefore, he himself is the one who this proverb applies to because he himself is God and he himself is trustworthy. Look back at John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just a reminder, the Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. Thus, this Jesus who is God, who has come from heaven, is trustworthy. He brings to us all the heavenly wisdom. Therefore, we can believe him. Two things in our text today of what we must believe from him. First of all, we must believe him, this one who's come from heaven, of why he's come. That's the answer for that is in verse 14. Why has Jesus come? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what's Jesus doing here? He's quoting something from the Old Testament. He's quoting something from the book of Numbers. Remember, Nicodemus is still in the audience here, though he's addressing it to a larger group here. Nicodemus would obviously have known the Old Testament law. And so to help Nicodemus try to get this thing, he's so confused about what Jesus came to do, he goes back to a very familiar Old Testament story. So keep your finger in John through going backwards again and go back to the book of Numbers, to Numbers chapter 21, so we can make sense of what Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus and helping him understand about why Jesus himself came. So Numbers chapter 21, we're going to be in verse 4. 
verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, who may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Would that be your go-to story to explain why you've come? What is Jesus trying to show us here? Well, let's look at what this, this particular account in Numbers means. This is, first of all, a story of sin. The people have rebelled against God. The people are grumbling. They're complaining. They're not trusting God's provision. They don't like what God has done. They would rather go back to their slavery than have what God has given to them. And so they're complaining and they're sinning. And so it's a story of sin that becomes a story of discipline. God corrects them in their sin. He, sings, he brings these serpents start biting and people start dying because of their sin. We talked about this some on our Wednesday night um, series of how to understand the Bible. There's blessings for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. We see that theme throughout the Old Testament here. So here's some of the curses coming for their disobedience, for their sin. But it doesn't stop there of just a story of sin and a story of discipline or punishment. It's a story of grace. The people cry out to God, we're helpless. They can't stop the serpents from biting them. They can't stop dying. We need you to do something, God. And God in his mercy and his grace provides a remedy. But it's not the remedy that they would expect. They ask God to take away the serpents. But does he take away the serpents? No, he doesn't remove them. He doesn't even give them some type of anti-venom to take when the serpent bites them. So it becomes a story of faith. He's going to have them do something that's not what we would expect. Make a bronze snake, put up on a pole, and if you get bitten and have that venom in you, if you look at that and have faith, you're going to live. It's not what man would invent, not what man would expect to do for this. And realize in this story, this is a story of God's grace being applied to the dying through their faith. And don't miss that because Jesus is going to use it himself. This story in Numbers is the story of God's grace being applied to those who are dying and they receive it through faith. So Jesus will pick up that same theme of himself. So back to John chapter 3 where we were reading and back to verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So, there's a connection here. In the same way, the Son of Man would have to be lifted up. What does it mean to be lifted up? Well, if you read in most other books, like in Acts, lifted up is usually dealing with Jesus' glorification, him ascending back into heaven. But in John, anytime John uses the term lifted up, he uses it three times. It's always about Jesus' crucifixion. So it says, so this must the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, so must I be lifted up. So must I be crucified. So must I be killed in this. This is an imagery of Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus, the innocent one, the one who is God himself, hanging on that cruel Roman cross, dying. This is the image that's trying to be portrayed here for us of what Jesus came to do. Why did Jesus come to die? He came to die so that we might live. Look at verses 14 through 16. Again, keeping in mind what we just read in Numbers. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, I hope you see the parallels there. In Numbers, when we were looking at, the Israelites had sinned. They grumbled against God. They complained. They did not believe. The reality for us today, friends, is we've sinned. 
Bible says that all have sinned. Every single one of us in this room, the best person you can think of is still sin. We all are full of sin. The Israelites in Numbers were dying because of their sin. They were literally being bit by snakes and people were dropping dead from the poison of the snakes, the venom of the snakes, because of their sin. And friends, the reality is we are dying as well because of our sins. We are on a progression to physical death, but spiritual as well because of our sin. Our sin nature leaves us condemned on that. But there's also grace in this. Just as God sends grace, a remedy for, the, for the, the death that's coming on the Israelites, he has made a way for grace to come to us when we are on a path to death as well. He's made a provision for us not just to have life, but to have eternal life. But perhaps one of the most important parallels here is one of the easiest ones to overlook is that's the role of faith in both of these. Back to the numbers account. You've been bitten by a poisonous snake. Is your first thought going to be, I'm going to stare at a bronze snake on a pole to be okay? That takes faith. That takes belief, especially because realize God did not remove the snakes. Can you imagine how you're going to be walking around watching every step and there's these fiery serpents all around you? And God says, quit looking down. You've been bitten. Look up and you'll and believe and you'll be saved. They have to quit looking at the snakes at their feet and they have to look at this pole. They have to have faith in what God has promised to be delivered. And friends, the reality for you and I is we're surrounded with a world that's still attacking us. There's a very real enemy that's trying to destroy us. And Jesus says the solution is... It's to look at him, to look at Christ, to be saved as well. It's a story of faith. But the big differences here are, first of all, in Numbers, the hope was just for the people of Israel. But for us now, the hope is for the whole world. John 3, 16, one of the favorite Bible verses. For God so loved the world. The salvation that's available now, the deliverance is not just for the Jews. And friends, it's not just for Americans either. I know in our culture we kind of act like we're the chosen people of God in our country. But this is not just for us. This is for the entire world. It doesn't matter where you're from, what language you speak. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. It makes no difference. This message of hope, this message of freedom, this message of salvation is available to the whole world. But the other big contrast between this account from Numbers that Jesus quotes and what's going on here in John 3 is that this is for an eternal healing that can come, eternal life. The people were bit by the snakes. They could look at the bronze serpent and they could live, at least for a time, because they were going to eventually die again of old age or something else, right? But what Jesus offers to us is not something temporary. He offers us a permanent thing. He offers us unending life, eternal life. Eternal does mean unending, that it goes on forever and ever and ever. But don't miss this. The eternal life that Jesus offers isn't something that starts in the future. It starts now. I think sometimes we miss that and we only look to what's to come. This is something that happens now. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but one day possibly gain eternal life. No. It says, but have. Have his present tense right here, right now. Whoever believes in Christ has now eternal life. It starts when we believe in Christ. And friends, eternal life is not just not wanting to go to hell. Eternal life is experiencing God right now. So just a little aside with this, friends. If your only confidence in your salvation is that you don't want to go to hell, and so you prayed some prayer one day, but there is no experience of God, I plead with you to go back and, and look at your soul and look at your heart and look at the Scriptures because that is not what eternal life is all about. No one ends up in heaven because they don't want to go to hell. We end up in heaven because we've fallen in love with Jesus. In this image, though, of Jesus being lifted up, one of the big things I want to see is we see grace in this. What is grace? Grace is God's kindness to those who are undeserving. God's kindness to those who are undeserving. Verse 16 describes that for us. It's probably one of the best descriptions of God's grace. For God so loved 
the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God loved, God gave. Why? Because it's his nature. We're talking about this on Wednesday nights in a few months when we start our attributes of God's sake. But it's the nature of God to give. It's the nature of God to love. God loved, and so Christ came. He could have done it a different way. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, you do realize that Jesus could have come and obliterated the whole world because of its sin, and God would have been completely just and holy still for doing that. God did not have to make a way of salvation for us. That's God's love. That's God's grace. That's God's kindness. We don't deserve it. The Bible is so clear in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. None of us deserve God's kindness to us. God could have wiped out the whole world and would have been perfectly just in doing so. Instead, he chose to show grace to offer salvation to those who are undeserving. And friends, that leads to an important clarification for us because in our culture, I think sometimes we act like Jesus came because we're so good. Or Jesus came because we're such an amazing people for him to rescue. And friends, that's just not true. I heard a very popular pastor preach a few years ago. And he said something that troubled me greatly because he stood up and he held up a kind of a rusty metal cross. And he said, friends, he said, Jesus died to polish off your rust so your natural inner beauty shines out. Friends, that's heretical. We have no natural inner beauty in us to shine out. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. Ephesians 2, 1 tells us we are dead in our transgressions and our sins. Friends, that's not a picture of greatness in Jesus coming because we're so amazing. That's a picture of helplessness in him coming because there is no other hope for us. And our text today shows that as well. Look at verses 19 and 20 of our text today. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Friends, according to this text, outside of Christ, we love our sin. Jesus didn't come because he went, man, that person is so good, I'm going to go help them out. Outside of Christ, we love darkness. We love our sin. We can put on a really good face around our church friends, but if we're not in Christ, we deep down love evil. We love Darkness. And friends, apart from Christ, that is all of us. We all deserve to be under the wrath of God. But instead, in his kindness, God gives grace. Not because we're great, but because he's great. Not because we're good, but because he is good. And perhaps the quote I've heard that best summarizes this whole idea to us comes from John Piper. And John Piper simply said this, The wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Did you catch that? I mean, that's just rich. I think I've even shared it in here before. The wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And that's, we see all that in this text right here. The wisdom of God. Verse 13, we already saw. No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus possesses all wisdom because he is God. The wisdom of above. The wisdom of God found a way for the love of God. Verse 16 of John 3. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, love is not just a sentimental feeling. Love is demonstrated in actions. And God so loved the world that he gave. He demonstrated that love for us. This love in action. The wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why did Jesus have to die? Because a holy God cannot overlook sin. 
Holy God can't brush it away. He can't just kind of sweep it under the rug. Like, I kind of like that person. They'll be okay. God's holiness requires that every sin ever committed be punished. There's no way around that. For God to not punish a sin means God is no longer just, and he then is no longer God. Every sin has to be punished. And so either we bear it or Christ bears it, the innocent one who can take it because he lived a perfect life. And here Christ bears it. Verse 14, he is the one who has looked up. He's the one who's crucified to satisfy the wrath of God. And when the wisdom of God finds a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God, the justice of God is not compromised. Verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see the justice of God there. The wisdom of God found a way for the love of God to satisfy the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. We can believe that Jesus can do that because he's trustworthy like we also saw. He came to die to be lifted up to give us grace to make us children of God. That also leads us to realize that we can believe Jesus when he tells us how we're to respond to this truth. Like I told you time and time again, the gospel of John demands a response from us. As such, believe is the key word of this whole book, really. And we see that again in verse 18. We've already saw it in verses 15 and 16. Whoever believes does not perish but has life. But look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friends, God's mercy and kindness is available, but it is not automatic. There is no universal application of forgiveness to all of humanity here. This is something to those who receive it. And it's a sobering reality for us in this text. It says in verse 18 that that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, notice this phrase, is condemned already. Friends, people do not get condemned when they hear and they reject. They already stand condemned from the beginning. We are born with a sin nature. We are born sinners. Those of you who are parents in the room, you don't have to teach your kids to be bad. It's not like, man, my kid is perfect like Jesus. How do I help them be like the world? I mean, none of us are having to do that. It's like our kids are lying. Our kids are selfish. What are their first words? Mine. Why? Because we are born sinners. We are born separated from God. We are born with a hostile nature to God. We stand condemned already. And so those who do not look upon God's solution for the sin problem, it's not they get condemned at that point. They just remain condemned already like they already are. They remain under the judgment of God. And so, friends, the only solution is not to be a better person, is not to join a church. It is to believe. And we, should we be surprised by that? We saw that in the numbers account. The solution was not some anti-venom. The solution was to look and believe God's solution. We've been introducing our boys to the classic movie, The Ten Commandments, of Charleston Heston. We figured it's time for them to see some of that classic work there. We've been watching that, and it's been fascinating even to watch them try to process and understand this. Like, you know, from the account in Exodus, when the Passover happened, God said the solution to be delivered here, the death angel is coming, take an innocent animal, shed its blood, put the blood on the doorpost of your house. The death angel passed there. It wasn't like you board your house up and make it really tight. It wasn't like come up with a great plan. It was you kill an innocent animal, put blood on your doorpost, and when the angel sees the blood, the angel passes over. It was all about belief. It was about belief in the Passover. It was about belief um, in the wilderness there and in numbers. It's about belief now that when we believe in Christ, that is our only hope. And we can believe Jesus because he's trustworthy. He tells us why he's come and how We are to respond. But one last thing that bears mentioning before we wrap it up this morning, and that's this. Belief is not mere intellectual assent. Belief is not just knowledge, friends. Even the demons know who Jesus is, but that does not say. 
Coming to church, studying the Bible does not mean you are saved. It is not intellectual ascent. It's not ritual. Belief is what we saw last week, receiving a radical transformation. And it's, and it's a sobering thought to realize, friends, what we saw just two weeks ago, that many who came to Jesus believing because of the signs, it says that Jesus did not believe their belief. Friends, if we apply that today, there's a lot of people who pray to sinners' prayer that Jesus does not believe they're believing. There's lots of people who walked an aisle of a church and been baptized, but Jesus does not believe they're believing. There's many who've joined the church and even been leaders in churches, but Jesus does not believe they're believing. Because if we believe, it changes us. Look at the last verse of our passage today, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Those who believe, those who are in Christ, notice what it says here in verse 21. It can be clearly seen. Friends, if we are in Christ, it doesn't mean we're sinless, but it means something has changed. If we have what we had last week of a radical rebirth, we had a radical transformation, being born again, then something has changed in our life. We, the old is gone, the new has come. God has given us a new nature. And it's not because of anything of us. Verse 21 says, His deeds have been carried out in God. Friends, if we have transformation because we're in Christ, because we're born again, it's not because you and I have worked really hard at it and because we've done all this stuff. It's because God has carried it out in us. That the Holy Spirit has brought about these changes in us. And so that leads us, as we wrap it up this morning, with a question for all of us. question for us, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, if Jesus is trustworthy, which he is, we saw that back in verse 13, Jesus is trustworthy. And since he's trustworthy, we can believe why he came to die so that we might live. We also have to believe him when he tells us how we're to respond. And so I want to leave you with one question that I have to ask myself as well. Is there evidence of God's grace changing me and changing you? Is there evidence of God's grace changing me and changing you? Because, friends, if we are in Christ, if we have really believed, not just going through the motions of belief, but really believed, if we've received the radical transformation of the new nature, we take Jesus at his word here, what we do will now be clearly seen because it's been carried out in God. God is giving us strength as he changes us, as he makes us new. And so my challenge for you is simply this, to pray, to ask God, and even to think, whether you have been a believer for many years or you're a new believer, not sure where you are in the journey, is there evidence of God changing me? Is there evidence of God's grace that has led me to believe in Jesus, to fall in love with Jesus? Not just I don't want to go to hell, but, but I want to love Jesus. I want to be with him. And is there evidence of that grace changing me, transforming me, shaping me, making me into a new person? And let that be a question that drives us this week to our knees and drives us this week to pursue him even more because he is worthy of all things. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for this text in John chapter 3 that you have shown us, once again, belief. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would let us all think about that question of is there evidence of your grace. Father, if there is change in our life, it's not because of us. It's because of you. But there's nothing we can do to earn your forgiveness. There's no righteousness we have in us to make, to make you look on us with favor and want to love us. God, we are depraved. We are sinners. We have no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would, in all of our hearts, mine included here, Lord, that you would drive away from us any thought that you loved us because we were good. God, we have nothing apart from you. And would you this day let us marvel more at your grace. Or for those in this room who are in Christ, who really have believed in, Lord, it's changing. Your grace has been at work in their life and it's evident. Would I pray this day they would praise you and rejoice in what you've done. They would just begin to thank you for the work you've done, that you've given them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe the gospel. 
Lord, we realize that belief is a grace gift from you, not something we conjure up. And so, Lord, for those who do know you and are walking with you, I pray that today you would fill their hearts with thanksgiving and praise and gratitude to you because you are so kind to us, Lord. That you've made a way that we, we deserve to be condemned. You've made a way. Lord, I don't know where everyone in this room stands with you. And there's a great likelihood, I believe, that someone in here has never really trusted you. Perhaps they've even done external motions. They've prayed a prayer. They've done all these other things. But, Lord, there's no grace that's changed them. Or we cry out for that person, Lord, that they might experience eternal life, that they might, by your kindness and your grace at work in them, be drawn to you. To not rely on self, but to rely on you. To give them a new heart and a new nature. They might love you and worship you, not just now, but for eternity to come. But I pray that the gospel will never grow old for us. I know when we look at things like John 3.16, it's so easy to hear words that we've heard year after year after year. But God, would you give us grace that this week we might marvel at the truth of John 3.16. God, that you so love the world, not just us, but the whole world, that you gave your only son, that whoever believes will have eternal life. And what I pray for everyone who is in Christ, that this week, Lord, we would experience eternal life. We'd experience your presence in our life. Not just the hope of heaven in the future, that we long for that and we, we really do desire that. But even now, to be experiencing your presence in our life, the difference the Holy Spirit makes in our hearts and in our lives, even today. So would you let us have just a greater taste of eternal life, even this week. And may it lead us to greater worship and praise of you. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. I pray your blessings over them today and in the week to come. And I pray now as we reflect through song of what we've just heard, you would just guide our hearts in worship of you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as